This is Sean Lynn Jones, editor of International Security, quarterly journal of international relations that's based at the Belfer Center at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Today, I'm joined by David Ekblad, who is a professor of history at Tufts University and the author of a recently published article, Present at the Creation, Edward Mead Earle and the Depression-Era Origins of Security Studies. The article appears in the winter 2011-2012 issue of International Security. It's a fascinating account of how one person, Edward Mead Earle, played a key role in shaping the study of war, peace, and strategy in the United States. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if we could begin by talking a little bit about how you became interested in this subject. Well, in, it came about in two ways. One was simply being around security studies. I fell into security studies almost accidentally. I started working on a project on development that gained some currency in, in world affairs. And this project on the history of modernization in U.S. foreign policy spoke to concerns about Afghanistan and Iraq, spoke to contemporary issues in ways I hadn't expected. And I ended up getting fellowships at a couple of uh, security studies institutes, ISS at Yale and the Belfer Center to complete this book. And I had never given much thought to security studies as a field, but being in these institutes that were very interdisciplinary, fairly ecumenical in how they approach scholarship, I got interested in where security studies had come from. And I began to familiarize myself with the, the corporate story of security studies. And as I began a second project that's on the emergence of a new American globalism in the 1930s and 40s, I began to notice that figures like Earl were speaking about security studies without it being security studies. And then I began to notice that the people they had touched went on to be part of what people who write about security studies in the present refer to as security studies golden age in the Cold War. Before we you know, get into more detail about um, the role of um, Edward Mead Earle, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what security studies is and what you mean by the term and what the field is all about. In fact, in, in the article, you refer to it as uh, a tribe, an academic tribe. So uh, who are the members and, and what do they do? Oh, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting set of natives, if you will, that populate this terrain. In all seriousness, security studies, I would define very simply as the question or the problem of violence in world affairs and the understanding, the control, and the management of issues raised by violence in world affairs, put very simply. For the tribal element, I would almost say tribe is actually a bad term to correct myself. It's much more of a community that embraces those who can offer something to solve this problem, to address this problem of violence in world affairs, which is one of the things I find very interesting about security studies, is again, this ecumenical orientation that it's about the problem and solving the problem. How do the people who are in the field understand its origins? Obviously, your article is about how this field emerged and the role that Edward Meadorl played. But do the people who are, are, are members of the community know where it came from? Yeah, they, they do. They have a good origin myth, if you want to go with that concept. The idea 
now as it stands, the received wisdom is that security studies emerged as a response to the problems raised by the Cold War and nuclear weapons. It's a post-1945 story. And it's, it, it's correct in understanding that period. What I wanted to bring to the discussion is that some of the issues, some of the structures, some of the approaches to solving this problem, to dealing with this problem of violence and world affairs, actually emerged at some earlier points. And that the, the depression was instrumental in some of the, the real ferment that laid some of the key foundations um, that we still sit this intellectual project on today. Why does it matter? Why do we need to understand where this field of security studies came from? Well, it's always a good idea to know where your foundations are and how firm they are intellectually. I would also say for the contemporary security studies community, it gives an understanding of how flexible this field has been, why something that was based on, if it was based on simply nuclear weapons in the Cold War, why did security studies transform itself, adopt to the post-Cold War period in the 90s, to questions post 9-11, and to questions today? If it was so set on one set of very particular historical origins, I would say understanding its past gives us a good perspective on its present, why security studies remain so adaptive, and often has a lot of things to say about contemporary questions. Your article tells the story of how Edward Mead Earle played a central role in the origins of the security studies field as we know it today. Tell us a little bit more about him. Who was he, and uh, what drew him to the study of international politics, of you know, war, of peace, and strategy? Yeah, Earl's an interesting guy. He's a historian. He goes to Columbia as Columbia, like many other American institutions are, are embracing a, a research mission. He goes to Columbia also when there are a set of very active progressive types engaged in uh, what's called the new history, which is to use scholarship particularly and a set of uh, disciplines, not just history, to solve problems in the present. And Earl goes on to do this. He writes his, his early work is, is about uh, the Baghdad Railway uh, through the Ottoman Empire in World War I. That, that's to raise questions about growing American commitments in the world in the 1920s. Earl gains uh, some prominence, gets elected to the Institute of Advanced Study that's just beginning in the 19th, early 1930s. He's among its first class of scholars. And he uses that position as the world situation worsens in the 1930s to address a concern that he and many other people that he's made connections with are growing very, very concerned about, which is the rise of totalitarianism, the decline of a liberal world order. And he is able to use his position, his status, to put together a program at the IAS that's funded by the Carnegie Corporation to investigate the question of strategy. And he's very particular about what he's trying to do. He's trying to not only understand contemporary events, but put forward solutions to this problem. He sees it as very much set up against a lot of the trends in international relations scholarship in that period, which had been focused on international institutions. And he's trying to, and, and, and this, this gets to who Earl was, using scholarship and a spectrum of scholarship to solve contemporary problems. 
Well, I find it a little bit interesting that you, as a historian who has been drawn into uh, security studies as a field, and maybe it's not surprising that you should be drawn to the study of Edward Mead Earle, a historian who um, you credit with much of the uh, shaping of the field in its early days, back in the oh, 1920s and especially the 1930s. Did you also go to Columbia uh, as uh, well, by any chance? Or is I did. I did. <laughs> well, and I, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's not. It's not attempting to to make myself into um, such a significant figure. But there are. But I will I, admit I, there's some sympathy there to a figure who you wouldn't immediately put in the middle of this group but who's actually very significant to it. So. Was Earl deliberately trying to shape a field of study, or was his prime objective more to shape the policies of the United States in a, a changing and uh, increasingly threatening world? He was trying to do both. That's the interesting point. He was both trying to rearrange academic study and scholarship while also producing something that would change the way Washington thought about world affairs. It's very actively a project to not only cultivate scholarship, but then create the resources that policymakers can use. And it's also to influence public discussion. And what struck me about Earl is how thought out this all was. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't something that unfolded very early on as he was putting this project together, as he was approaching funders, as he was recruiting scholars. He's thinking about this project as something that's going to not only change how academics work on the issues, but it's going to influence Washington and it's going to change public discourse. You mentioned that there already were some institutions in place and as I recall from the article, there was the Carnegie Corporation of New York at one point or another, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Institute of Advanced Study where Earl was based. And uh, how did he add to what those institutions were doing already? To what extent was there already a push to develop a field of security studies, to develop a group of experts who could influence U.S. policy and perhaps play a role in making policy. What did he really do to make a difference? The difference is, is there's a broad move after World War I. There's a, there's a longer-term evolution of what people in the know call IR, international relations, the, the study of international affairs. And this had really intensified after World War I. A number of schools had been founded, a number of programs around the country. And like you mentioned, the foundations had become invested in this. What Earl was trying to do was get something specifically focused on the intersection of military policy, national capacity, diplomacy, in a way that would give the U.S. the resources to deal with a deteriorating world situation. In this, he's very different from many of his contemporaries who are, again, more focused on international institutions. There's still, there's still a point where many people are hoping that international cooperation, collective security, the League of Nations can effectively deal with international crisis. In other words, many people are approaching things from a very different angle than Earl, who's simply saying, we have to understand force in world affairs, and we may have to use force in world affairs to shape the world in a way that's, that's conducive to the United States. So would it be fair to say that he, he fits into almost that you know, classic vision 
of what was going on between the wars, the battle between the idealists, both in the diplomatic world and in the academy, and uh, the realists or, or pragmatists mm -hmm. who wanted to overturn the more idealist version of the world uh, and substitute better understanding of the use of force and the need for global activism by the United States. He could. And, and one of the things that got me interested in Earl was that a number of people have said, oh, he's part of the realist tradition. And in some ways he is. But in other ways, he's, he's not. In other ways, he becomes a very strong idealist about what the United States can do, how the United States can act on the world stage. And by the time you go through World War II and are on the other side of it, he's very idealistic about what the United States can do. He's also very broadly based in what he sees as national and international power and what you have to cultivate. It's not simply questions of the organs of state or the military, a very traditional view of power. He's got a very broad sense, and this is reflected in the program that he runs at the Institute of Advanced Study for a number of years in terms of the scholars he draws in, the types of, of questions they deal with, which is about psychology, propaganda, how societies respond to crisis. That's very diverse, particularly for its time. So he, he actually, he's an interesting guy by, by later in his career, he's often a plague on both your houses, deriding scholars who who he felt were too much on what we now call the idealistic side, being focused on the league and collective security, and then very critical of proto-realists, people like Nicholas Spikeman and, and Carr, who he sees as focused too much on the wrong questions, right, or not broadly focused enough on what national and international power are. I guess it's an important reminder that uh, we shouldn't impose our strict dichotomies on the past too rigidly, and Earl was able to transcend them. One of the um, vehicles he used, uh, according to your article, was a seminar mm -hmm. he convened that brought together a lot of the, the people who were studying security and strategy and U.S. foreign policy from a variety of disciplinary perspectives. Could you say a little bit more about that seminar, how it worked, and... Um, its lasting influence? Sure. He puts together a, a, a seminar, but it's more like an institute, and he gets funding from the Carnegie Corporation, and it runs for just over 15 years, and it draws together a whole slew of scholars. And, um, and did this meet regularly in Princeton? Yeah, it met regularly in Princeton, and in fact, it drew scholars in. They would they would fund scholars for a leave year or bring important, important people for a series of years to work on whatever research was in front of them or on a particular issue. And the, the seminar is very interesting because it's very international. One of the things that security studies, particularly in the American context, can be criticized for is it's, it's sometimes it's too focused on the nation state and one particular nation state, the United States. Earl is very much about rearranging U.S. capacity to deal with the globe, and he's very focused on the United States, but his seminar is very, very international. And that's one of his goals, is to bring in a broad section of scholars who were not just historians or political scientists, but also not just Americans, to deal with the problem, the, the problem of, of violence in world affairs. The seminars, the way Earl conceives of it and the support he gets to further it is not only, again, to take bright, particularly younger scholars and propel them forward 
as academics, um, that is a goal, and the goal is to is to change academic discussion. They're very much focused on changing the wherewithal policymakers have to understand these issues, and Earl in particular, but many of the seminar participants spend a lot of time trying writing op-eds, writing writing for a popular audience to bring something out to the public. So it's very much operating on a series of planes to change the way people think about Who were some of these people, and, and what sort of influence did they have, either in World War II or in the Cold War, or even beyond? I mean, the, the leading figure is Bernard Brody, who's a younger scholar at the time who goes through and gets support for his work on naval transformation. And Brody is, is probably the perfect example of what Earl wanted to do take a bright young person, support their research, and then have that person transform it into something that was useful for policymakers. Brody is one of these bright younger folks who's going around to meetings in the early part, before the U.S. enters World War II, speaking on naval issues, and then he's writing for a public audience about naval affairs and all these other issues. Brody then will go on to serve in the Navy, we'll go to the San Francisco Conference for the founding of the UN, and then we'll go off to Yale, and then to Rand after World War II, and become a founding member of this this golden era, and, and a major early thinker on nuclear weapons. And one of my points in writing this article was that Earl's seminar, because it was, it, it was approaching these things in ways that were meant to have a long-term impact on discussion, Brody's thinking, even though Brody himself at one point says, well, you know, the atomic bomb is such a profound shift. Other things, uh, things that have come before don't really matter. You can see the patterns of, of emphasis, right, that Brody and others already have imbibed as younger scholars, right, that technology is, is, is vital to understanding global change and, and the change in strategic calculus that policymakers and the public have to consider. Brody certainly had a, a lasting impact, and uh, I recall that his work was assigned in the very first undergraduate international politics course that I ever took. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's associated with Edward Meadero is um, the edited volume, Makers of Modern Strategy. Mm-hmm. And uh, for many generations, it was one of the key texts in the study of uh, security. It's since been reissued with uh, new editors, uh, and updated, but for for years it uh, was a basic text. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about how that book came about and uh, how Earl, you know, envisioned it. Sure, Earl comes up with this book, The Makers of Modern Strategy, as the U.S. is entering World War II, and it's really to educate the public in a broad sense about strategic issues. And I would even say use the somewhat awkward phrase of the educated public, meaning college audiences, military people, officers, government officials, sort of the basic parameters of what is what are strategic issues. And they go about it by looking at the biographies of some key figures. And who were some of those figures? Some of these, some of these it ranges from Machiavelli to Hitler. And in fact, Hitler is one of the key points of the book, is that the book essentially in the first version, first edition, ends with Hitler, as Hitler transforming some of these strategic questions. And um, along the way, Clausewitz, Clausewitz Napoleon, Lenin, maybe, or? Napoleon mm. Lenin, yeah. Lenin and, and the rest of the Bolshevik gang. So it's, it's not just military leaders, right? It's 
ideologists, it's political leaders who have, by the way they've reshaped world affairs, have an impact on the way strategy is conducted. So it really um, does fit into his vision of not only understanding how to create integrated strategy, military, political, and economic dimensions all being integrated, but how individuals with a knowledge of strategy can have an influence and should, right. whether they're leaders or whether they're more academic in mm. orientation. Yeah. Earl died young, as I recall from your article. He often was in ill health, and uh, I wonder if you could speculate a little bit about on what might have happened had he lived longer and if his influence had uh, you know, lasted another few decades, or his life at least. Sure, sure. I think he might have become known as a more important figure in the Cold War world and the discussions over the Cold War. But what Earl is a cautionary tale for academics, perhaps, is be careful if you don't have graduate students. He was at the Institute of Advanced Study, and while he had a number of bright younger professors, younger scholars come through, he didn't create a, I'll use the term again, tribe of acolytes to go off and further his name. He also, while he wrote a lot, a lot of his earlier work was more circumspect about the United States and its role in world affairs, that book on the Ottoman Empire and the Baghdad Railway. A lot of his later work is much more about pushing the United States to be more engaged and to gird itself for the struggles with, with some threats abroad. And that writing didn't vest itself in scholarly debates as much as, I think, other work of contemporaries, even though he fostered a number of them. Edward Hallett Carr is one of the people who comes to his seminar. He doesn't really get along with Earl at the time they're both there, but part of the reason Carr's name is pushed forward in the United States is because he spends some time at the IAS under Earl's auspices. If Earl were around today, how would he regard the field of security studies, uh, to some extent the enterprise that he started uh, many decades ago? Uh, you know, I, I don't want to make him sound too curmudgeonly, and, and it's always dangerous to, to speak for someone. But I'll say he might, he, he might be a good critic. He might be a good critic of some of the approaches. He could be very critical in, in, a, in a very trenchant way. But I think he'd be pleased, actually, to see the number of institutes, to see the seriousness of scholarship. And I don't want to sound like a toady for security studies. Security studies, you know, is not a perfect endeavor and, and you know, this, this paradise. But a lot of good work is being done on a lot of different fronts that really does embrace the ecumenicism that Earl grasped, that this is a problem. It's not a discipline. If it requires an economist, bring an economist. If it requires an anthropologist, bring an anthropologist. That it necessarily will require a historical view, but you also need people who understand the contemporary world. And that that's the way many security studies institutes operate. People would argue about ideological dispositions and points of emphasis, but again, I think he'd be pleased with the variety of inquiry that's going on now. You've mentioned one possible general lesson to draw from uh, Earl's life and his role in the field of security studies, and that is if you want to have academic influence, have graduate students. <laughs> right, right. And I think most uh, leading professors are well aware of that, <laughs> and they, they work hard to populate the field yeah. with their, their own acolytes, uh, some of whom end up disagreeing with them. Right. But can you think of any other broad lessons that we might draw 
from Earl's life and his role as an intellectual entrepreneur? I think there are a few. I mean, of course, that whole point about where you cite yourself and the legacies you leave and the institutions you build. But I think there are a couple of things. Is again, that from the start, and even a start that many in the field of security studies don't appreciate today, a start that, that they're unaware of, it's been an interdisciplinary enterprise, I think, to remember that and to keep that close. The other thing to realize is that even the most entrepreneurial of scholars, and Earl was very definitely one of these in terms of his goal of building up a field of inquiry. Even the most entrepreneurial mind and scholar is dependent on other institutions around them. Earl was able to do a lot of what he did because others came to agree with his project because of where world affairs was going. And as I say in the article, scholars are not slaves to the historical moment they're in, but those events surrounding them do have a real impact on what's possible. And I think to remember that, that many things that we still feel in this field are products of historical moments that have made things possible for institutions and individuals along the way. I think that's something to remember. And forgive me, that's the historian in me. And then I'd say finally is, is well, scholars in particular can, can, can fall into navel gazing. There is something about knowing where you come from that can give you perspective on where you are. That's an important thing, I think. Well, I think that's a very important point, and perhaps that's the one that really we should end on because it sums up what your article is all about. Knowing where you come from does indeed tell you something about where you are, and uh, that indeed is the the message of this article, which appears in the winter uh, 2011-12 issue of International Security. Thank you again, David, for joining me today. I really appreciate your coming in to talk to us. Thank you, Sean. My pleasure. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information on international security or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.